Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Boy, do I have a treat for you today. Direct from the North Pole, bringing in the bottom end and the good vibes. Ladies and gentlemen, I got a living legend with me. Somebody I've admired my entire life. Cannot tell you what an influence he is on me and on you. Even though you may not know it, this man has made you move more than once. So welcome, my main man, Lee Sklar to the Noel Kassler podcast. Lee, how you doing today, sir? Oh, ho, ho, ho. It is a pleasure to be here, Noel. Uh, I, I just, I've been following you. I know you've been a really good boy, so you're going to get everything you deserve. Thank you, Santa. I appreciate it, man. That hat works. Yeah, uh, this is really hot. I'm going to pop Please. it off. I appreciate the effort. It looks awesome, man. So, you know, right off the bat, everybody, if you're looking for a Christmas present, Lee's got a new book out called Everybody Loves Me. You can get it at... It's LelandSklarsBeard.com, all one word. Perfect. And signed copies available too, which is a great Christmas present. And if you guys don't know about this book already, it's incredible. Lee sort of has a trademark greeting that his his friends and fans around the world have always... uh, enjoyed taking sort of selfies and pictures with and he shares that and it's amazing it's a who's who of popular culture and entertainment and regular folks and it's more than just like a picture book because you're getting a sense of like the personality and who all these people are and it's such a broad swath of people I got my own pick with you once I was doing Cindy Lauper's Home for the Holidays and you were rehearsing at SIR in New York next door it was a whole bunch of people we were getting ready to do uh we were doing um john lennon's like 70th birthday at the garden we were rehearsing we were next door to you guys that's right absolutely which is a great event i've done that with jackson that's just a great tradition in new york that they they sort of do that and that was the big one that's awesome well you know right off the top you've been such a gift to people i think during this pandemic you know i know you started it before but the youtube diaries and summations of your career and every week how you pick an artist it's something not to be missed and and when we were all isolated I think it was and we still are all those of us that are paying attention right and we'll get into that because <laughs> you know you were just saying the other day it's it's surging again and people are acting like it's over but watching those I mean it really is a master class on the music business if you're a musician and you're interested in the craft of popular music the best advice I ever got was like expanding my horizons. I went into live TV because I worked on like the Kennedy Center Honors and all these shows where there'd be artists in other genres that I might not consider, right? You know, I'd be doing a gig and I'm like, oh, here's Billy Preston or Aretha Franklin or Little Richard. You know, when you're exposed to different elements, it, it, it sort of rounds you out as a person. And, and I think that that's an element that comes through in those things. You know, I was listening to the Bette Midler episode last night and I love Beth as we all do. She lives in my, in my neighborhood in the city. And as you know, she's just a force of nature. But yeah. to, to hear you recollect those instances, you know, and those sessions, it's just, it's just a gift. I just want to thank you for that, you know. Thank you. I mean, it, it, it became, it started as an accident at the beginning of all of this. And thus far, I think today will be my 804th yeah. video. Um, I haven't missed a day since March 23rd, I think, of last year. And it, it, it is one of these things that I've never thought about my career. You know, to me, everything is about today and tomorrow, not what I've done in the past. And this has kind of required me to go back and 
do some forensics, <laughs> rediscovering what I've worked on over the years. And a lot of it is about the relationships that develop. You know, there's a, a common bond amongst the players in LA where I'm looking back at albums from 40, 45, 50 years ago. And it's still a lot of the same guys I'm working with today beyond the immediate family. It's a, it's a really fun journey for me. And the letters and, and the notes that I get from people has really been moving in terms of what it's meant to them uh, to have this to look forward to. I get people sending me like from Finland, they're eating dinner, watching my videos on TV and stuff. I mean, it's a trip. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. And that's funny because that's how I watch them. I watch them at my kitchen table. It's like my quiet time. And you know, it's so great that you share that with folks because you were part of like, for lack of a better term, almost the greatest generation of, of studio musicians. You guys came in right after the Wrecking Crew, you know, this legendary, and you worked with those guys as you obviously, as a young kid, you're in the room with these people that you worshiped. And like me, I'm 50. So I grew up reading liner notes, you know, in the mid seventies, early seventies, it was you, Ross, all, you know, Craig Dorgie, the list goes on, but I always wondered what it was like in those rooms, you know, and when you'll break down recording Dr. My Eyes or something and sharing an anecdote about Jesse Ed Davis and all these legendary figures, you're giving listeners and viewers a chance to be there too. Well, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed. And, and the thing I've really, as things are slightly opening up, I mean, you know, I mean, the reality of it is we're far from being over this this dark age that we've you know found ourselves in but one of the things I really enjoy doing is when I am in a real studio is doing a studio tour and taking people in the door so they can actually see what these studios look like and and get a feel for a place where the music that they've enjoyed listening to was actually created and it's it's really I mean the, the responses that I've gotten are really remarkable and heartfelt. And, it, and it's really fun. Like people will tell me, you know, they'll say, oh, my, my three-year-old daughter, every time I'm watching you, she goes, oh, it's Santa, it's Santa. And, you know, it's become this whole, whole scene. I, I, but I, I love doing it and I have no intention of stopping it. it it'll, it becomes more difficult as work starts to come in again. It's still high on my priority list. So at, the, at this point, I fully intend to keep doing this until I'm worm food. <laughs> you know, I'm right. just going to keep at it. Good. Because, I mean, it's taken all, it's like musical church or something. You know, there's this thing I do called morning pages where you get up and just, you know, put down three pages of unfiltered thoughts and stuff. And your stuff is obviously curated, but I imagine it almost has a cleansing spiritual kind of benefit for you. Just the discipline of showing up to write every day. You know, I've been doing a bit of writing myself and Jimmy Buffett, obviously, who you've worked with, told me, just write a page a day, man. Just do a page a day, no matter what. And then at the end of 30 days, you have something, you know, at the end of a year, you really have something. It was actually the best advice I ever got on writing because I was always thinking like, oh, I got to sit down and write the whole novel. And he's like, no, man, <laughs> Herman Woke told me just a page a day, you know, and it, it works. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. I think one of the coolest things I ever saw was we do these gigs up till you know COVID, uh, but we would do a gig every year at the Library of Congress. There's a beautiful theater in the Library of Congress, and it's called We Write the Songs. And what they what it is is it's ASCAP, the music publishing company, ASCAP. It's their way of like talking to senators, 
giving them a concert and talking about the writing process and please protect writers. And um, so it, it, you know, at, on any given show, there'll be like six to eight artists on it and, uh, and I'm part of the house band. But so in doing that, we've also gotten access to some of the archives uh, on personal tours of the Library of Congress. And I, one of the things I saw that was so great and it kind of falls into the, what you were just saying was there was a, a glass case and there were five pieces of legal paper in there that Oscar Hammerstein wrote. And the first one just was all kind of the sketching and, and all it said on top was things I like. And he was listing all these things. Second page, they're all dated. Second page was still saying things I like, but a little more organized. And the third day, it was called My Favorite Things. Right. And there were arrows going back and forth to all these things. On the fourth day, it was far more cohesive. And on the fifth day of that week, there was the song My Favorite Things right. in full bloom. You know, so I mean, it wasn't like he sat down one day to write a whole song. He sort of was building an outline that he then, you know, it's like you started with cliff notes and by the end of it, you had your full essay. And it was, it was interesting like that though, just to say, get up, write a page. Yeah. done and uh maybe you're inspired and you write too but get something down exactly yeah and the discipline takes on its own kind of inertia you know i, I started at one and i three became the average you know because once you build those muscles and i love what you just said because it's so important for people to think or to see a window into the creative process and how like pedestrian it sort of is right nobody starts with this polished you know epic classic song that Coltrane's going to interpret and countless others and you know will be part of the canon of it started just like you like a human being showing up for what he was experiencing and you said at the top of the show it's like you don't look back artists good ones don't they're present you know one of my favorite quotes from you is how when you show up on a gig or a date you're there to look like and to, to give a shit, you know, that's your attitude. Let's listen to the, the playback. Let's not pick up our phone and check Twitter. As soon as the take is over, let's engage in what's around us. And if there's anything in my life that I regret these days, it's when I don't do that. You know, when I go through an experience, it was like, I was in my head looking at my phone. Why wasn't I there with these people that the universe has, has sort of put in my path? Right. Cause I'm sure you, I can't speak for you, but I'm sure a lot of the magic that you've been a part of creating came from intense sort of collaboration in this one space, right? Absolutely. I mean, that that's the hardest part of going into like a lockdown. Like I've been recording from home, people send me part, but it's that juice that's flowing when you have a room with a bunch of creative people in it. When I'm sitting at home, all I can do is affect my bass part. Right. But when I'm in a studio, I can affect the entire thing. And like, we'll be in the studio with some artist and we go, God, what a great song, but it could use an intro. And the band makes the intro or uses a, could use a better bridge. And there's this, this camaraderie that takes place when you have those creative juices flowing that's almost impossible to, to duplicate when it's just you by yourself adding your part. You can do the best you can there, but you can't really affect anything else because they're not there to respond to it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what so well said. There's not that moment to moment, you know, and that there's also I find I mean, I'm a performer. I do comedy and I was I had a theater background and it's the same sort of thing like 
the high you get as a performer is from the other people. You know, it, it's sort of like somebody else upping your game and knowing you never would have gotten that part if the other guy didn't do that, you know, or have that one moment before, you know, and in comedy, it's happy accidents are the best thing to me because it, it puts everybody in the moment. I was at the Wall Street Theater on Thursday night. You guys, I was, I saw your show and I was there a couple nights later and the power went out, Lee. A freak storm because of climate change came through and knocked out the PA, the lights, everything. And the fire department had to come in, but you know, it was safe. And I, everybody sort of gasped and I was like, no, we got this. I went to theater school. I can fill this theater with my voice. Stay with me. Let me finish this story and these jokes. And the people loved it. You know, and they were like, thank you for handling it well. And my point was like, that was a gift because I knew everybody was focused in that moment. I'll tell you one of the great moments in the 90s when the giant, you know, huge blackout took place. Well, when that blackout hit, I was sitting in a theater watching Dick Sean's one man show and all the lights go off in the theater and the emergency lights come on. Well, Dick was so spontaneous in everything he did because I had seen his show before and it was a defined show, but with a lot of parameters for things. And for quite a while, everybody thought it was part of the show. And where he's going, oh, be careful when you go out tonight. It's really dark out there and stuff. And he finished the show and we opened the door and we walk out and Manhattan was pitch black. I mean, there was not a light to be seen except for car headlights and flashlights and candles. And But it was interesting, you know, if you're really a pro like that, you go, okay, you know, let's just incorporate this into the show. You know, let's, it'll make it work. Put everybody at ease. Yeah. Don't freak out over this stuff. It's not like a tornado went through and devastated the place. It's just, you know, it's dark, but just shut up out there and, uh, and I'll, you can hear me. Yeah, exactly. And that's what happened. It was like, I got this. We're safe. I got the green light. We're going to carry on, you know? And that's, you know, that's the beauty. I think the magic that I talk about this on my show. I was actually talking about a story with telling about Stevie Wonder and working with him on Barack Obama's first inauguration. And we did a big concert on HBO on the mall beforehand. And, you know, there's 2 million people on the mall just sending love up to the steps of the Lincoln Center, you know, and the vibe that was there was just palpable. You know, it was yeah. that spiritual thing. And I've chased that my whole career because I felt it I think you might've been on this gig. Jackson Brown did a, a, there was a Sunday festival that Jimmy Carter put together on the National Mall in 1978. So it was right after Jackson was kind of the headliner, obviously right after you did the Running on Empty tour, but everybody was sort of there in spirit and harmony for this greater good, this sort of feeling of hope that we can yeah. get when we collectively come together. And uh, my show now is about that because we've obviously been divided, right? And we've lost a lot of that. And I think when people come together, it's like church. It could be 20 people right. in a room. But if you have that, that focus together, it's very powerful. And, and uh, I, I embrace any time I get to be in a situation where you do have that kind of, it's not so much a kumbaya moment, but it, 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 it kind of is, is where there's this entire feeling within a, in a group, within a positive direction, and it gives you hope, and, and you look at it, and you go, it can be better. Right. It, and, and you just, we have to just fight this negative kind of creature that's evolved. It's always been here, but now, now it feels empowered. Yeah, because it is empowered, you know? And it's, you know, it's folks like you that are bringing light to us, that are bringing music 
and, and that are sharing, that are being honest about it. One of the things I admire about you most, besides, you know, the music and the artistry, is how you spoke out on Facebook. As you know, you were outspoken. You were calling it like it is, which I've always tried to do as well. Like this was, this was not the time to hold your tongue and worry about offending maybe somebody in my fan base or anything like that. You got to tell it like it is right now. Far more important to, to, to speak the truth than to sit there and worry about your numbers. Right. I mean, I was, especially during the election, during that whole period, I was being, uh, normally I, I get kicked off of blocked on Facebook about 130 to 150 days a year. And, and I kind of wear that as, as a badge of honor, but because I, I get death threats yeah. from people on Facebook and stuff. And, you know, I, I call them, you know, occasionally I call them out, generally I ignore them because they're just a bunch of wusses that sit behind us, incredibly brave behind a screen. And they don't have the balls to come out of the house, you know, kind of situation. But I think that you can't complain about anything if you haven't taken a stand against it, you know, to sit there and talk about well, everything here is all screwed up. Well, what have you done? Right. Exactly. Well said. Uh, what, what are you willing to give up to, to make this a better place? I worked behind the scenes in live TV. That was like my main career. And I toured with Jackson and CSN and all these people. But I did the last CSN tour with Russ in 2015. We went around Europe and all that stuff. And we came home. And then it turned into 2016. Trump got the nomination. I had a cushy sort of gig in live TV to go back to that I was 20 years in. And I realized, like, if somebody didn't start speaking out about this guy, he was going to win. You know, and Hillary's campaign got in touch with me and said, do you want to tell what you know? Because I knew some secrets about him, <laughs> you know, like he snorted his Adderall. And I so appreciate everything you have done about this. You're, you're like a, a, a like a light in the darkness when all this stuff was going on. And I, I applaud you for getting out and, and doing what you did. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. And when I did it at the time, it was, you know, I called up my colleagues and I said, we got to talk to the press, talk to the New York Times, tell them what we saw, because we all had these NDAs. And Mark Burnett said, who's a big reality show producer, said, I'll sue anybody who speaks out. You won't work again in this business. And I'd call up my colleagues and they'd say, look, Noel, I'd love to, but I got two kids in college. I can't afford to do it. Right. And I understood that, you know, they're like, I'm in the DGA. I get 700 bucks a gig. Even if I speak out and people know it's all true, they won't hire me again just for the damage, you know, that it'll just because I'm difficult now. And I, yeah. I, first of all, I told them, well, there's nothing on the other side of this guy anyway, because if he becomes president, none of us are going to work because he'll do such a bad job. And that what happened, unfortunately, right? The, the business shut down for a year and a half at the least anyway. But my point, and I don't, I'm not to toot my own horn. I was just like, I can't not speak out. Do you know what I'm saying? Like nothing is more important. I've already had a good career. I'll figure something else out. It was just like an imperative. I, I worked for Springsteen to a bunch on like live TV and a tour. And he started speaking out pretty vocally around the first Iraq war. And his theory was like, look, if I've built up goodwill, it's time to cash it in. <laughs> you know, it's, we need all hands on deck for this battle, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and and I found myself like telling people, look at you know, don't don't change your mind because I've said something, but I'm imploring you to get educated, not to be sitting here quoting Sean Hannity and right. and all the spew that that that's coming out every day. I, I I always welcome diversity and conversation, 
And so if you have, I would like to be educated. So tell me what it is that appeals to you, what's working for you on this. I would never hear back from these people. All they would do is come on and go, you know, killery and, 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 you know, oh, bummer and all, you know, and they, they throw out these keywords and then you'd go to their page and it's got a cross and an eagle and an American <laughs> flag on it every time. And these are the most anti-American hateful people. But I felt it was imperative because I'm sitting here looking at a, a country that, that I really adore just being used as toilet paper by these people, taking the constitution and wiping their ass with it. And it's, it's heartbreaking that so many people have, you know, they're, they're in Jonestown, they're lining up for seconds of Kool-Aid. Exactly. And, and that's, you know, that's really what I wanted to talk to you about, because you've, you've been on the front lines of sort of cultural movements, both progressive, you know, and you started your career, obviously, in the late 60s and early 70s and early environmentalism. You know, you've been a part, you've worked with so many artists who spoke out, no nukes concert, you know, just in these incredible sort of benchmarks. And I always wonder, you know, of your generation, like, is this, this is as bad as it's ever been, right? I mean, it feels like this must be worse than what Watergate felt like, or even the end of the Vietnam War protests, because it just feels like you just described, people are so weaponized. You know, they get a screaming eagle and a punishing sticker on their pickup truck, and it's almost about being brutal to each other. This is kind of the personification of evil that we're looking at right now. I mean, I, I, you know, going through Nixon and Barry Goldwater and all, all these people back in the Vietnam period and all that, there was still kind of a dialogue that was, re regardless if you were, it, it was the antithesis of what you thought talking to this person, but there was the ability to have some kind of a conversation. But with the people that have bought into this, the, the QAnon people who are now talking about magic dirt and you know, and all these things, they it's like we went through a wormhole into an alternate universe like Bizarro World and Superman, where everything yes is no. And right. I, I sit there in shock every day and listening to the anti-vaxxers, like when we played we, the immediate family gig that we played at Adler Hall in uh, New York City, there was an anti-vax, anti-mask inspiration outside um, going on when we were doing our sound. It had nothing to do with our show. It was just on the street there. And these people are out there with bullhorns just spewing the most unbelievably ignorant, stupid shit. And you're just kind of going, if, if they were the ones that were going to die from it, <laughs> then I'm, I'm, I'm all for Darwinism. You know, if they all line up for this year's Darwin Awards, go for it. But the fact that they're a menace to, to the community as a large, as a whole, is what I find incredibly distressing. If they want to think that way and, and be affected by it and take down them, themselves and their families and all that, so be it. You know, I don't want to see anybody die if it can be avoided, except a few people. <laughs> but, you know, it's just there's this, the, the, these people have just swallowed this ignorance pill that's just beyond comprehension. And I know they've always been there, but I, I, I look at Trump as the, the hood ornament on the clown car. You know, I mean, these people are all, they've been there, they're packed in, and he's just allowed them to all come out and, and say what they think. But I sit there and I look at, like women who support him have to be so full of self-loathing, a veteran who supports this guy has got to be suffering from shell shock or something because everything he is is against everything you would think they believe in, yet they're 
they're looking at this guy like the second coming of, you know, of Golem is really what right. they, <laughs> Yeah, no, I exactly. And it's like, I tell people in my stand-up act, if you even saw what this guy looks like in person before he has all the thing, like he's like riffraff when he gets out of the shower with my hair hanging down, like he's a maniac. If he came and sat next to your family at the food court, you'd get up and leave. Like I've seen the way dogs react to this guy. Okay. Like when they do sweeps, you know, bomb sweeps and building dogs would always freak out and then start barking when he walked by, which tells you a lot about who he is. He's also never had a pet. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That says a great deal. Exactly. His humanity or lack thereof. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's well said. That's exactly, it's like kids and animals freak out in his presence because they sense there's something really malevolent there. And I happen to know he was a bad kid from the beginning and his parents hid it because he was sort of the namesake of the family. The older dad had, uh, older brother had some issues. So dad knew he had to pass it on to this idiot son. And the whole life was about like keeping how messed up he was a secret. You know, that's why they bought his medical, you know, his school grades and his medical records and all, you know, everything around him when you get close to him is like, sign this NDA, don't tell anybody what you saw, because <laughs> what you're going to see is going to blow your goddamn mind. And that's what's coming out of the White House now, right? All these tell all books are like, you won't believe what he did. He wanted to nuke everybody, you know? I wish they were meaningful in the overall scheme. I mean, the, the, the problem I find is the people who believe in this guy there i mean they would give them if they said kill your grandmother for him they would do it they're so deeply in you know into this guy the cult of him that it's just horrifying that they are this lost a soul that this has become the person that's the standard bearer for what they dream of america and certainly i can understand when you get into white fear and all that you got these people that are seeing the face of america you know, changing pretty, pretty drastically into me in an incredibly positive way to make it a true melting pot of having every culture here. But th- th- these people, especially these old white men who just foment right. fear in all this, and you just, and you kind of hope they die, but they have kids that have grown up with them. So there's more generations of these morons coming. It's, it's oh. scary. So scary. That's so well That's said. Scary. Yeah. They're dangerous. They're not, they're not benign. I mean, you look at January 6th and, you know, these people, you know, like in spite of the Republicans saying, oh, they were there to go to the gift shop, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, these were dangerous people that caused death and mayhem. And if they feel like, and if there is no serious punishment for these people, especially the instigators of it, not the knuckleheads who were, you know, wearing their giant head pieces right. and running around, then what's to stop him you know the only thing is you know you take mark meadows and you put him in fucking prison yes done done take trump put him in prison i mean we've got gitmo sitting there being wasted on taxpayer dollars it's there for terror can't think of better terrorists to put in there than our domestic terrorists you know there's a few isis people running around now these people they 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 expose themselves to you every day on TV and spew things that are really, if, if it was coming from ISIS, people would be freaking out over it. Yet here they kind of look at them as they're Americans. Right. You know? No, exactly. Yeah. 
amen brother because and that's what i tell people i'm like time is not on your side all this time that ag garland is dragging his feet trump's fundraising all day long you know he's been building this army for three years these guys in the pickup trucks with his screaming eagles that are sending you death threats and all this stuff that he's weaponized those people you know other fascists didn't have the internet hitler didn't have the internet right? They didn't have QAnon spreads because people can get on at four in the morning in their computer, you know, and just get poison downloaded into their brains. And when it gets married with this sort of ethnocentric white Christian, white racism with working class resentment, it, it becomes this just toxic brio in these people that becomes their sense of identity. These, it, yeah. The scariest thing to me is that they think they're doing the right thing. You know, that's when real evil happens, when people think they're fighting on behalf of their family and their country. Yeah, no, we are we are in a pivotal, frightening time in this country. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And I mean, I'm turning 75. I've been around for a lot of this crap and it's never had the same feeling that this past few years have created. And I know it's been here before Trump. I mean, Trump didn't create this but he became like the perfect, the perfect embodiment of it. But this, like even the, this, the production manager on Phil Collins's tour, we were talking one day and we got to talking about Trump and he goes, look at even a village of idiots needs a village idiot. Right, yeah. And we had him right there yeah. and they were rallying around him like he's the Pied Piper. Right. And he's, he could give a rat's ass about any one of his constituents man, it's all about him and what he can benefit from it. I think he would throw his kids under the bus in a second if he could benefit from it. And for these people to look at almost deifying him, it's just, it's unbelievable that they're that lost. Well said, and you're absolutely right. He would throw his own children under the bus in a heartbeat and they would throw him under the bus too, given the chance. Ivanka and Jared, I was Ivanka's handler. Like if you think Trump is bad and he is, you should see what those kids are like. You know, Don Jr., it's like the Dalai Lama would punch that guy in the face. Like he's like, that's what I always tell. They're like, what's he like? I'm like, the Dalai Lama would be like, I'm punching him in the face and the Pope would be like, I'll hold him while you do, you know? There's just a darkness there. And you're right. Every village needs an idiot. I think what Trump, his innovation was, he sort of like, like Henry Ford invented the sort of factory line, you know, the conveyor belt. Trump sort of branded this thing and made it cheap and accessible. You know, he's like the Ray Kroc of, of, you know, fast food hate. You show up at a MAGA rally, you get a cheap shirt, you come out for the night, you scream with a bunch of other idiots, you feel good about your life and you go home, you know? It's like he's made it so easy to buy into this crap. Yeah. But, you know, that's a dangerous thing. You know, it's cigarettes, it's cancer. And I'll shut up here in a minute, but like you said, you know, if another country did that to us, you know, had spread anti-vax stuff. You know, I haven't seen my grandma in two years. She's in Albany. You know, she's two hours north of me and she's in a, a you know, assisted living old folks home. And I don't want to go in there and endanger her, even though yeah. I've been boosted and all this. It's not worth the off chance that I could be bringing something into a facility with compromised folks. I'm not doing it. But think of all those people that are sitting around that, you know, won't get to see a loved one again, you know, won't get to say goodbye properly because of this idiot. Yet they'll they'll be laying there on uh, the person will be laying on their deathbed, still not believing it's even real, or they're saying, "Can I get my shot now?" Right. And uh, 
and the, I, the, the ones I so I mean, I give them a shout out every single day. And I get people attacking me on my on my things, you know, and saying, why don't you just play music and shut up, you know, instead of spreading all these lies about the vaccines don't work and masks don't work. And I get all these doctors that write to me all the time going, these people have no clue. And if they were to spend like one hour in an ICU and really seeing what suffering is. But the thing that's, that to me is, is so profoundly uh, j- just sad about it is it's the healthcare workers who, when this started, were so diligent and so on the line. And then suddenly the ability to, to really curtail this comes along and the people are saying no, you know, a chunk of them. So they're still having to put themselves in harm's way every day now on behalf of people who are too stupid to do the right thing. And it's got to be really frustrating for them because it's like you're banging your head against the wall at that point because they didn't need to be there. Yeah. You know, and it's it's just this weird, like I said, like, you know, going through a wormhole into some alternate universe where you're kind of going reason. I mean, the, the fact that I was a science major in college, I've always that's been I love science and to see people sitting there denying science, but but applauding Sean Hannity and, and Fox News, I'm going, where did the disconnect come from in this, that these people, yet chances are they've, they had polio vaccines as kids, right. they've had diphtheria, they've had, I mean, we've had vaccines forever. I, I can't, I, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in the science of all of this. And, and to see these people out here just talking spewing all this in absolute insanity that or they 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 edit out a a, a fauci soundbite and then that becomes their mantra and you go that's not even what he said that's not what he's even t- taking it totally out of context and stuff but now all of a sudden you're rallying you've made a poster about it it's just <laughs> and, uh, i hear you man that's what my show is about so i appreciate you sharing that you know that's that's what we talk about because you can't not talk about it. And it's maddening. The demonizing of Dr. Fauci, this genius researcher. I've spent time down at NIH. That place is like full of miracle workers. They broke the genetic code, came up with AZT. Pediatric oncology ward there is the best in the world where they're trying to help future generations live. And to demonize a guy who was part of a, a group of scientists that threw you a life raft. You know, the way I did an analogy the other day, it'd be like if you just got off the Titanic in a lifeboat and one of the rescued passengers was sawing a hole in the hull of the boat. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what these guys are doing. A poll came out yesterday, said 30% of Republicans are never going to get vaxxed. Well, to me, that means there's landmines laid all throughout American life because I don't know when I'm going to run into one of those guys. I don't know when the you know, the loading guy who meets me at the loading guy, you know what I mean? It makes it all like, is that one of those guys who lied about his status, you know? Well, and they can all go on the internet and buy fake cards right. and stuff. So even if they go, well, I'm vexed, I've got all my stuff. I mean, they've been finding like these NFL players that have, have been getting fake things and then they get COVID and they're infecting the team and they're, they're saying, well, you're... Uh, you know, I, I, I early on in this, I posted when some people were saying, you know, I can't get vaccinated, I don't trust what's in it. And I was going, I knew you when you were doing heroin, when you were an alcoholic, when you were doing, you know, uh, just eating at McDonald's every day. And now you're worried about what you put in your system. Give me a fucking break. 
Dude, that's awesome. Exactly. No, that's, I got a joke in my set about that. It's like you're eating a McRib sandwich and you're worried about what you're putting in your body. You know, you got a freezer full of hot pockets. (laughs) Like, you know, you're getting tattooed. Like there's all kinds of, just the list goes on, right? You're putting Roundup out on your lawn, you know, like Americans poison themselves by choice all throughout the day. (laughs) And, uh, it's insane. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's weaponized ignorance. There's no other way to, to deal with it. And the only way to combat it is, is I don't even know how, you know, I, I share your frustrations and I can't imagine what a health worker feels like you're going into your third winter now of working shifts where you're watching people die, slow, painful deaths, suffocating, essentially, you know, holding yeah. up an iPad so they can say goodbye to their family. That should have happened like the least amount of times it had to, you know, and if we had done the right thing, we would have been out of that situation a year ago. It was our misfortune to have this happen during the worst administration in this country's history, period. I mean, right. everything, and yet guys like him and his family, they go get vaxxed, but they don't do it on camera. They do it, you know, they still talk anti-vax while they're covered. It's all about them. They don't give a shit, you know, like they don't want to be around these elitist, you know, you know, left wing elitist people who's more elitist than this motherfucker. I mean, just if you think he's your man, go to Mar-a-Lago, go to say, I'd love to do play a round of golf and give me a room and how quickly security would come out and have your ass in the street. Yeah, exactly. He, he grew up, you know, he lives on Fifth Avenue, you know, or did. And he's got, you know, he was a millionaire when he was 11 months old because his dad would hide all his money in, in trust funds in his kid's name so he didn't have to pay taxes, you know? So the, by the time Trump was three, he was a multimillionaire. You know, when I worked for him, I didn't work for him. I worked for NBC, but we, you know, we did the show. He'd walk through those casinos, you know, in the 90s, I did beauty pageants and he would have security walk next to him when he walked the floor of like the Taj Mahal. So the rubes wouldn't come up and touch him, you know, yeah. and say hi to him because they'd be like, oh, Donald Trump. And he hated it. He wasn't hanging out in Alabama, you know, in Ohio. He was taking their social security checks into his casino slot machines and sending them home on a bus without a free lunch, you know? Yeah. Or taking their daughters to a beauty pageant and and, uh, and having his way, dude. Well, and that's that's the real thing, you know. When I when I spoke out, you know, and I'm one guy, but I know directors who know stuff where like he had to get he got flung, you know, he would have to get like escorted out of a situation because he had been a predator, you know. And he hires ex NYPD cops, and you know his name is on the thing, and nobody wants to make trouble. So they basically cover it up, which we know in our business or in the entertainment business wasn't just Trump, you know, powerful men were getting away with shit they had no business getting away with. That's honestly what I want to see him go to jail for. A friend of mine met him when she was 10 because she skated at his rink in Central Park. By 12, he had taken a liking to her, you know, and she called him his dirty uncle. She sort of got into drugs and alcohol and ended up in Epstein's place. She was basically like some one of those women. And she said, no, you won't believe what those guys did to women in that place. You know, and I basically like, I know I wouldn't, please don't even tell me. I'm sorry you had to live through that. But like that enrages me, you know, E. Jean Carroll, who I happen to know, who was a, she was a famous writer at the time that he assaulted her in Bergdorf Goodman. Right. And I tell people that story because that shows you who he was. He attacked a famous woman that he knew in a dressing room department store and not like a Sears in the middle of nowhere 
in Bergdorf Goodman on Fifth Avenue, you know, like, and walked back to his office afterwards because he knew he would get away with it. Yeah, well, that's the thing is he feels he's Teflon. Right. Nothing, no, he will not be held accountable for anything that ever happens because he can buy his way out of it and, and make it their lives so miserable. And he's just, he's such a vile, disgusting piece of excrement. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, it's like I always I always look at this like, you know, one of the times I got thrown off of Facebook for 30 days, all I did was pose a question. I said, what could have happened in Mitch McConnell's life to make him such a vile and hateful creature? And they came on immediately and said, I'm promoting hate on my channel. And and I all I did was pose a question that I think is valid because he is a vile and hateful creature, you know, but they've they've so own all that media. I mean. Well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg would be in bed with Trump before he'd be in bed with Linus Pauling. Or, yeah. you know, so, <laughs> Absolutely. You know I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And that's actually how Trump got the election was Facebook. Jared went to, was at Harvard at the same time as Zuckerberg. And Jared yeah. called up his friends in you know, Palo Alto and said, how do I micro target people? How do I find the guys in Michigan that had voted for Obama, but also have like, you know, a gun and a Kid Rock CD? You know, how do I get these sub, you know, that once might have, you know, belonged to a union, but now we're sort of like buying Bitcoin or whatever, you know, they found these specific demographics within America that they needed to turn in these three states. And then Jared fed that to the Russians. And then the Russians micro-targeted these people on Facebook with Killary, with all these things you mentioned. And then people discover it thinking they're discovering it on their own. And then they tell a buddy and then that guy tells somebody else and it spreads, you know, like a cancer. And that's that's how he won. That's cheating in and of itself. And we all know he coordinated with them and stuff. But and it somebody like you speaking the truth on Facebook and getting kicked off just just shows you, you know, how corrupt the thing is. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the hard part for me would be as if I ever met somebody like if I ever met Zuckerberg in person. It would be all I could do not to just cold cock him, yeah. except, you know, I know he's, he would be surrounded with his posse and you would never get close to him. But nothing, I think, would bring me more joy than just to be able to, you know, plant one on, on this piece of shit worm. Yeah. Yeah. And he's he's changed the country forever. You know, we don't get to go back. That's the other thing you said. They have to hold these people accountable. You have to do it quickly. What, what I warn people about is look at the damage that a Marjorie Taylor Greene and a Lauren Boebert and a Matt Getz are doing. Imagine 20 or 30 of them in Congress, which is what you could have in the next in the midterms, you know, a year from now. So we really have to hold them accountable. Hopefully something will break. As you know, this week we have these emails and stuff. I mean, hopefully some of that will light a fire under Garland or something, you know. So I find it just horrifying I mean, I understand that the political process, there are steps to do it right, where you have to, it has to run a course. You have to make sure every T is crossed and every I is dotted properly. Otherwise there's room for contention and all that. But the idea that while they're waiting to get this all in order, these people are, are just out there poisoning the well every day and getting more and more people on their side, especially as the pandemic goes on, you feel the frustration of people that, I don't want to wear a mask here. You know, you're getting in my, my personal space here with this and all this. And they're, they're digging their heels in so much deeper. And until you could purge these toxic, you know, these festering boils uh, out, of, out of government, we're, we're dead in the water. You know, I mean, we're, and it's coming in increments 
that if you if your eyes are open, you can see it. Right. If you don't want to see it, you're not going to see it. And that's, that's the, the problem with all to me with this is we're sitting in a time that is so pivotal for yeah. our future. And uh, and it's, you know, it just frustrates me to, to death. And, and people that I know that I thought I've known for 40 years are spewing some of this. And I'm going, where's the pod? You right. know, it's like invasion of the body snatchers. All of a sudden, I'm talking to a thing that looks like somebody I knew, but it sure doesn't seem like them. Yeah, I know. It's really disheartening, you know, and it's really, I don't think anyone's lived through anything like this in a nation before where you're in this sort of like a personality divide. You know, I mean, there's entire families where like they have to go home and see their pro-Trump dad or something and sit around the Christmas. You know, it's, I, I don't know. My point is, I don't know what the psychological long-term effects are from something like that. I think, you know, we'll be like almost two countries in a way. Yeah. There'll be places like for me as a comedian, I can't, there's states I can't go to. It's not safe for me to do a stand-up show in Texas or Florida or something, not just because of the pandemic, but because I speak out about Trump and guys threaten me too and stuff. And it's just, it, it's disheartening. And like you said, every day that goes by that they don't hold him accountable, he's, he's making money and he's building an army. And the other thing you touched on, which was so key is that people are weary, right? It takes discipline. I said at the beginning of this pandemic, you need a leader who's like, look, this is going to be really hard. This may be the hardest thing that you'll ever be asked of as a citizen, but we're going to get through this together. You know, we're a strong nation. You stay home. We'll make sure you get money. We'll make sure you get food. Just stay home. Just lock the whole thing down and keep it that way as long as it has to be. You know, in World War II, 20-year-old women had to go work in shipyards, welding and stuff. You know, they were going from Wisconsin to Portland, never left home before. And now they're working 12-hour shifts for the war effort. We can do these kind of things and make sacrifices if you have a leader. Right. Again, when I, in 16, I said, like, this is the last guy you want in charge if something bad happens. Because the guy I know would blow up the whole world just to save his ego. You know, he would, he, he really is a sociopath. He has no real thought of other people. And the scariest thing to me is that these same people that have been weaponized now for, for pandemic stuff, we're going to have to call on them to treat climate change seriously in the next couple of years. We have to call on them now, but we almost don't even have the will to do two things at once. But these are the same people that we're going to have to say, hey, you know what? You have to start conserving energy. You have to start doing whatever you can in your life to battle this and turn this around. That's what's terrifying to me is that the same oil companies and Koch brothers and all these guys that are benefiting, you know, Rupert Murdoch and all the anti-vax stuff. I feel like it's a dry run for when they tell people like, hey, don't listen to those lefties. You burn as much gas as you want. Coal energy is good. You know, like that's what really scares me is like, this same popula population that's been so corrupted is going to have to come together for the survival of the planet almost, you know? Yeah, and, and I'm, you know, and I, I, I always tell people like I'm an optimistic pessimist about things. And, you know, I really feel kind of like being on one of those planes where you've reached the point of no return on takeoff right. and, and you have to fly no matter what's going on. You can't stop the plane yet. And when I see all this going on, I, I just, I just kind of go, really, the, it, it, what happens will be the end of humanity. Yeah, we're, we're, we're just a, a speck right. on the life of this, this planet in it, in, historically. I mean, what, a couple of hundred thousand years we've really 
been around here. That's nothing. That's an instant in this planet's history. And, you know, I mean, who knows what would have happened if that asteroid had never hit this planet and the dinosaurs were gone. We certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be here in like we are. And there's times where I go, is that a bad thing? Right. You know, just to finally, you know, purge the planet of this cancer that human beings have become. I mean, we're the, one of the few creatures on this planet that can't cohabit with the planet. We have to, you know, especially since the advent of the Industrial Revolution. Before that, when we were an agrarian society, we had to work more with the seasons and the land and all that. Man, as soon as, man, they could make machines and stuff and start kind of terrascaping yep. uh, the planet to, to suit our needs at the expense of every other creature on this planet. They'll, things will survive. I mean, this, this orb will, will go on and maybe something spectacular will e evolve out of it. But we are hell bent on destroying the place for, for our use. And, uh, you know, when you, when you hear about, you know, I, we don't want so, wind farms, the, you know, it's so ugly you know, to see those windmills out there, you know, yeah. but having not be able to see anything because the smog is so bad from air pollution. Right. I mean, the, the, the arguments are such, uh, the, the arguments have the, all the substance of like a, a skim coat that even a, a, a mosquito couldn't have surface tension on. It's, it's so ridiculous. And, and then it becomes aggravating because so much of it, be, it to, in at least my mind is so obvious and yet you're sitting there. There was a great thing the other day where they were talking about uh, Greta yeah. and her followers and stuff and, and talking about this generation, how they want to make change. And then they compared it to, uh, I forget which one of the Kardashians it was. And like, you know, like where Greta has like 100,000 followers or something. And the other one's got like 20 million on there. And all they want to see is her closet with her thousand pairs of shoes. And, you know, you go... I don't put faith in that generation. I think there's elements of each generation that are thinking and caring people. And then there's a ton of these, these golems that just sort of exist that have basically enough, I think, brain power for basic life support. Yeah. That's what they use. You know, they're breathing and they're moving and breeding. And other beyond that, there's really not much uh, salvation in them. Well said. I mean, listeners to my podcast are going to love hearing you and they're going to be so thankful you were on here today, Lee, because those are the themes. You know, I talk about that, like combustion engines, you know, cars are cool, but they're like 110 years old. You know, agrarian society is a few hundred years. People were living in harmony, especially in this country. Indigenous people knew how to live with the seasons. They knew how to rotate the crops. Yesterday, you had dust bowl level windstorms in Missouri, you know, because the, the, the soil has been all messed with again. You know, and you need Monsanto genetic engineering to grow a crop now. And it just the list goes on. And what I always point out to people like, what's wrong with nature? You know, everyone's obsessed with technology and some stupid thing you can buy on Amazon. And like you go, I, I live on a basically a nature preserve. You know, I have a pond and a wetland and a river. And I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm about an hour outside of the city, but it's all horse farms and stuff. 
And I'll just go sit by the pond and I'll look at a dragonfly or something. And I'll be like, this is the most amazing thing in the world, right? If somebody just invented this, like if a billionaire was like, hey, look what I came up with, a squirrel, you know, people would be like, wow, you made that? That's incredible. It moves, you know, like life is already full of miracles. We already have what we need. The wisdom is in the earth and it's in the people that stay connected to the earth. And you're one of those people, you know, you're spreading light and wisdom. And that's what music does, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree, you know? absolutely. Well, it's just pivotal times we're in right now. This is really a make it or break it time. And, you know, you've, you, you've, you've prepared us well for that, Leland. I, I, I want you to know, and I say this with all sincerity, you know, that's what it feels like for me. For somebody who admired musicians and people that were always sort of progressive, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with Graham Nash and stuff like obviously Jackson, you know, these guys cared, you know, it wasn't just having a rock thing and that, like, that's all there. Have a good time, but raise the frequencies, you know, Bette Midler, like that's somebody who does, you know, she started a mulch pile in Central Park that's near our house in, in New York City, you know, that's somebody who's always the, the great artist, the point I'm trying to make, always have an eye on the big picture. Yeah, it was great when she was taking like these lots in New York, these vacant lots and making park, you know, parks out of them for yeah. like the neighborhoods and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's not hard. Right. That's the thing is it's not hard, but the, the, the city or the people around it make it hard. Right. And Jesus, tell me, explain to me the negative of taking all this garbage out of this area and putting in some green space and letting people come here and just breathe a little fresh air and relax. Yeah. Yet there are people that are going to fight this like it like crazy. I, yeah. I just don't understand that mentality. And I don't understand the mentality of, of people like the Koch brothers and all of these people that you go, so you're going to amass fortunes beyond comprehension. But what good is that if there's nothing to spend it on? And at the end of the day, the quality of the planet is being diminished to a point where what are they going to have like these little, you know, glass domes where they've got their little world in it and fuck everything outside of that. And it'll be, and you would say it's by invitation only, but who wants to be around these scumbags? Right. The kind of people they are and the people they, that surround them are, are, you know, it's like when you would see these science fiction movies and there's going to be a catastrophe on earth and they're going to, they're building a giant spaceship to take all these people to another planet. And then they start talking about who's going to be on it. And they have, we've got to get our politicians on and you, fuck, right. those are the last people who should be on this. You get your scientists, you get your teachers, right. you know, you, you, you get your, you know, people who own gardening centers and things you don't, politicians, man, leave them all behind. I just, I trust them as far as I can bench press my house. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Well said, you know. No matter how well intentioned they are when they go into it, there's always going to be carrots dangling in front of them that are going to make them, if not change their mind, it's going to slow them down to where they become slightly impotent. Yeah, they all do because money corrupts. It's the big money and they realize, well, I got to do this for the greater good. You know, the evil I've seen that these guys do, it's the subtle compromises. They think, well, I'll give them this because I want to get that, you know, and, and that doesn't work anymore because it's a life and death struggle now with the choices you make, especially in energy and stuff. You only wish when you sit and watch the movie, Dave, that that could actually be how it could work. Yeah. Just come in and go, well, no, we could have a child center. We just need to, let's go over the budget right. and get rid of all this. You know, the, we don't need the aircraft that the Air, Air Force says, I don't want it. 
but you're still going to spend a trillion dollars on it. That trillion dollars could really go to some greater good. But no, no, when it comes down to societal things, every penny counts. But when it comes to squandering money, boy, it, they, they print it, you know, just yeah. crank, it, crank it out. It's spewing out. It's not, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, I, I, I will, I will go down fighting. I will never bury my head in the sand and pretend this stuff doesn't exist, but it, boy, it's just so aggravating to me. Like we've said, where it's so obvious what's going on yet. People don't want to see it. They got yep. blinders. Exactly. Well, well said, but you know, truth raising the vibration, you know, storytellers, people doing it in music and comedies. That's why there's so much value in what you're sharing every day. Because, you, you know, people are tuning in to hear the cool stories about being in the studio and they're also getting your wisdom, you know, and saying, you know, I do need to think about that. It's not just shut up and play music. You know, when people would say that to artists, I'm like, what do you think an artist is? <laughs> you know, why do you think he's writing songs anyway? You want him to not talk about what he's feeling? Yeah. Why are you even here on this page? Right. You come on here only to, to cast negatives. I mean, right. there's plenty of other pages that think like you. So go over there. Don't come over here because it's pretty obvious if you read all the comments that you are one tenth of one percent at most of the people on here. So everybody's going to think you're a dick when right. you write something like that. It's not like they're going to go, oh, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you just shut up and play, you know, kind of thing. It's unbelievable. Exactly. No. Well said. Well, it's been an hour. I don't want to keep you too long, Leland. I know that you got things to do. Um, there we go. So this was your Christmas present. <laughs> Santa Sklar came to town. Yeah, there ain't no Santa Claus. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome, man. You're, you're, you are just, you know, you're a legend. You know, I, I know you're, you, I'm not saying that like, yeah, I'm just, I, I can't, really put into words the impact you've had on my life and what a gift the music has been that you've brought us all and just the sheer you know the the amount of love and yourself that you've put into all these artists you know and all these songs and and, and if, if any of my listeners aren't familiar with your body of work go check it out and check out the outlier stuff listen to you know dolly parton and clint black and all these other tracks because you'll you'll hear it i mean I shouldn't have brought this, even Gloria, you know, when I watched that January 6th, I, the first thing I thought was, oh God, Lee's on that track, you know? Yeah. You know I what do I mean? Like, I like looking behind you and seeing a violin bass sitting there. Oh yeah, yeah. That's my Tysco too. Lindley ta taught me, you know, about Tysco stuff. So that's the Matsumoko factory, late sixties with a rosewood laminate and stuff. Beautiful, beautiful bass. Yeah. I mean, the pickups are just insane. I haven't touched it. You know, the electronics are a little wonky, but it gets this beautiful tone. They're wonky on a Hoffner too, so. Right, that's what I, yeah, I figured, exactly. And well, next time, hopefully we can talk in, because I'm a, I mean, I have a house full of guitars that I collected on the road and amps. I'm a picker. I collect art and Americana and signs and just, you know, I got a barn full of stuff. A great lesson I had was Bill Wyman was backstage at a CSN show in London and uh, the Hammersmith or something. And he comes up to me and he's like, can I have that set list? off the ground and he picked it up and he said i keep everything you know and i was like i'm not alone because i do that i keep souvenirs thing i actually have started liquidating at this point because i got so much stuff I've, I've been selling a lot of kitsch and right. and different things i've got just because 
I'm just going, you know, getting to that age where you're going, man, I don't want somebody stuck with all this stuff if something happens to me and having to suss this out. So, I mean, I've, I've unloaded so much stuff and I haven't even really noticed it's gone because yeah. there's so much crap, but it's, I mean, valuable things. Yeah, it's, no, uh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm wearing the same thing. I mean, I got pre-Columbian art and you start to think of, especially like I have a barn, you know, and barns can like, you know, you like. It's a magnet for stuff. You exactly. Got, got the space you'll fill it exactly and i i got film projectors and art and you know in this part of the country as you know there's so many estate sales all the time and there's other people that have this stuff and it's just irresistible but you know you keep it going you pass it on and and i think that's a great metaphor for what you're doing in life you know especially these youtube things you're passing on these treasures yeah yeah i always felt rather than being a homeowner i'm a curator exactly and in art too right you're curating that spirit and a lot of these guys, sadly, that you got to work with aren't with us anymore. You know, we just lost David Lasley last week. Somebody who sang like I didn't know people could sing that good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I knew is the background Luther Vandross stuff. But I listened to that track you posted of his sing. And it's just like, I mean, stunning, yeah. stunning yeah, artistry. Just lost Phil Chen yesterday. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like they're, they're going quick, you know. But, you know, I sit there and I just get so pissed off because I go, OK, so David Lasley died, but Mitch McConnell's still here. Right. I worked with John Prine a lot, you know, and as we know, we lost him early. In, and I was like, how does this happen? You know, how does Trump come out of this thing and John Prine doesn't, you know? Yeah. And uh, I love it, like, that you share this stuff. Uh, I'll let you go here. But whenever I'd had these opportunities, like I worked with the Stones backstage and whoever, I would always go into catering and I would try to sit with like a truck driver or somebody who's been around for a while on the tour. And I'd be like, tell me what happened. Tell me about that small faces tour you were on, you know, in 1974. And they they love to open up about these stories. And it was always in my mind, like, I might be the one directing this story. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like somebody else might not ask this crew guy who's got a lifetime of experience and your generation, you know, invented touring, as you well know, they were learning on the fly. Buddha will tell me about trying to Mike Jackson's piano, <laughs> you know, Jimmy rig it and all this. You know what I'm saying? When we started, Shoko was in Jack Kelmy's garage. And, you know, they only, they only had two acts. They had James Taylor and Zeppelin. That's great. Exactly. Right watching them developing gear. I was sitting with Jim Bornhorst one night at dinner and he's got a napkin and he was sketching out an idea and he sat there and invented very lights. Right. You know, you know there's like, but you're, and especially when you're around the crew, right? because they experience and see everything. The band comes in, does it, goes. The crew is, is really the integral thing that holds all of this together. And, and they really, can have the amazing stories of all the things that went on, you know, behind the scenes and stuff and not sorted, but just the, um, the amazing machinery that puts all this on the road is, is, is something else. And, uh, Absolutely. Fascinating. Rance Caldwell. Rance would be somebody that I'd just be like, Rance, show Crow, go tell me about it. <laughs> you know, tell me about mixing, you know. Yeah. Rance and Doc. Yeah. They were, a great team together you know and, and and seeing people like jan alejandro was one of our crew guys who then went on to form jan l case company which is one of the biggest case companies in the business i mean it's the, the journeys everybody travels are really interesting and sometimes the ones the artists are on a certain level the least interesting of yes. the whole 
very well said. I found that early on, you know, this whole, not that artists aren't interesting, but the whole world behind the scenes is like, you know, that's where the real, you know, cause like you said, they're seeing it all day. When I, I was Stills' road manager forever, you know, he and I'd show up at four o'clock and the crew already had a full day. You know, we'd be in some castle in Germany, like, you won't believe it. We did a crossload from here. And then this thing, you know, it's like, so yeah. it's awesome. And it's awesome. The family of it all, you know, the, that you spend your lives and, and I'll shut up now, but a lot of people don't understand. And I hear this coming across in your things. A lot of being a musician, being in a touring band is about the hang. It's not just the music, you know, it's about, can I get along with these guys? Can I learn to live with them that 18 hours a day, we're not on stage. And, and that goes into the music. Cause as you know, when that's not right, nothing's right. You know, and, and the feel it. exactly. Well, on that note, I hope our audience felt good today because my man was bringing you some cheer. This is Lee Sklar. Go check out his book, Everybody Loves Me. You will love this book. Get this book, endlessly fascinating, all these pictures. The Immediate Family has got a self-titled album that came out this fall, completely kick-ass. You can get that at immediatefamily.com, anywhere you download, Spotify, you name it. Great stuff. Catch them on tour. I caught the tour at Norwalk, the show, and it was just, you know, you have no idea, not just how great their material is, this new stuff, but how many songs they created that you might associate with another artist. And then you guys play and you're like, oh, that's your song, <laughs> you know, that is, and it was so great to hear all that Warren stuff, you know, the Zevon yeah. material is just like, talk about a loss. That's somebody I've missed during what we've gone through. I often like, man, I wish we had Warren Zevon right now. Yeah. Boy, there would, there would be a nice, brilliantly caustic. Exactly. Uh, material coming out of warren yeah warren would have something to say for sure so thanks for listening everybody check out lee sklar once again i can't thank you enough for being here brother you rock all right jimmy man i just got to talk to lee sklar jimmy's our ex executive <laughs> producer folks so he didn't disappear in case you're wondering where he was this week but i had to give all the focus to our you know illustrious bass playing genius Leland Sklar who came on and uh you know as you just heard he's he talks like I do Jimmy I mean he was talking about you know nature and how we've lost you know our connection with nature how since the founding of agrarian society we you know we no longer like sort of live in in harmony you know mm -hmm. in industrial industrious like the industrial revolution gave rise to all these things that we're sort of suffering from now you know we had a you know a dust storm in missouri the other day you know cars global warming all this kind of stuff like i said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago like those things are a blip in the, in the history of mankind right but they're having an outsized effect on our life now and and you sort of have to listen to the storytellers and the musicians and the people that are sort of trying to raise your frequency to you know, get the right perspective on things because all these challenges are doable, right? We're we're in the holiday season now. You know, holiday is a time of promise and life and love. You know, that's that's what you know, little baby Jesus and Santa Claus. Gonna, you know, that's what all that stuff is about, right? Sharing uh -huh. good cheer. It's better to give than receive, and we need to think of that as people now. You know, do I need to receive another thing, or can I give back? to this planet can i put this thing down and not consume this thing because it's not going to work anyway i don't need four thousand pairs of shoes but you do need to save the planet you know and i know that doesn't apply to concert t-shirts because my man jimmy has a problem folks who are you rocking today 
I am rocking uh, Run DMC, um, you know, featuring Sit JBK <laughs> this week. So, you know, uh, I, I do have a problem. No, this is like my 12th shirt in two weeks. I'm, you know, I, I used to be a lot heavier, folks. Uh, so, you know, a lot of my wardrobe doesn't fit me anymore. So I got to get the stuff that fits. Yep. You know? Yoga Jimmy. Yoga Jimmy is skinny. <laughs> Gotta get yeah, try, trying to slim down, but uh, all the baked goods I've been having lately and even more stuff coming in with Christmas around the corner, you know. Yeah, so, and you got uh, all your women baking you pies. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's a rough life here in Indy. It's 51 degrees here in Indianapolis. Like as an animal, I'm, I'm concerned in December that we're at 51 degrees I know. here, you it's, know, but it, it's 60, unusual. 60s here in New York City. 60 oh, degrees, God. you know, in, in December. And it's going to be like nine degrees next week, right? I'm going to Boston. Well, I'll be in Boston. I'll be in Vermont when you guys hear this, folks. But um, yeah, it's cold. It's climate change. It's, it's cold. It's hot. It's crazy. Imagine how the bugs feel, dude. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, is it spring? What the hell? I bet I, that was a quick hibernation. Is it time to get up already? You know? Yeah. Looking but, around. Uh, exactly run dmc man i love you know i'm old school with that right that, that was the beginning of hip-hop for me you know i remember when the king of rock and all that stuff came out and um yeah. it was awesome it was awesome it was awesome when it cross-pollinated too with aerosmith and stuff because it brought it kind of up into the suburbs you know and I, I was you know an hour outside of new york city when that stuff dropped and I, it's funny at reverend run is an incredible person and a great performer. And I just did a benefit a few years ago with him. And when he got up and like did all those old songs, you know, it was like a room full of like rich old white people. Cause it was one of these charity $10,000 a seat kind of things. And people were just going off, you know, there's joy, <laughs> there's joy in that music. You know, the old school kind of hip hop had a lot of joy in it. I don't know what it is now, by the way, like every time I log on to TikTok, it's just some white teenage girl trying to twerk you know to trap yeah. music or trap rap or whatever you i don't everything sounds the same every other word is booty you know <laughs> yeah that's that pretty much summarizes it man i mean yeah. i've kind of gotten on to the to the prince train of like real music by real musicians you know i try i try to find those tapes as best i can not that you know process stuff doesn't sound good because i'll listen to drake or jay-z or something but yeah, they 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 just push this stuff out now. I mean, it's it's really, I don't know, very produced now. A lot of well, music, exactly. And Lee, you know, Lee was you know part of the greatest generation of studio musicians. He was started out in what was known as the Section, which which sort of took over for the Wrecking Crew, which was a group of LA session guys that played on all these records at Capitol Records and all the stuff you've heard Beach Boys, right? When you hear mm -hmm. Good Vibrations, that's all Wrecking Crew. You know, all those incredible singles that came out in the 60s and then the early 70s lee and these guys james taylor you know fire and rain all that kind of stuff jackson brown crosby stills and nash toto so what we talked about in the show as people just heard is that a lot of that was like guys in the same room looking each other in the eye vibing mm -hmm. off each other you know and, and that's a bit of what we lose in this overly produced stuff like it's fun and kids like it but there's not there's not a room for kind of like that cohesive vibe thing. And everyone, you know, everything's got their place. But, uh, you know, and Prince used to record all the instruments himself half the time. Too, you know? Yeah, if the guy could be in five different places playing all, all five at once, he could do that. But, you yeah. know, limitations within this world yeah. for, for Prince. Exactly.
<laughs> so anyway, well, we'll do we'll do a whole episode on Prince, as you guys know. I, I had the pleasure of working on a few gigs with Prince. But um, anyway, thanks for listening to this special episode. This is the Christmas episode. Lee Sklar. We talked about all the normal dystopian stuff that we do. But at the end of the conversation, you know, he talked about it may feel hopeless, you know, and for a guy like that, you know, he's seen it all. He started professionally in the late sixties, you know, he was working with progressive artists that spoke out against the Vietnam war and climate change early on, you know, which was the no nukes movement and stuff in the seventies and uh, Jackson Brown's before a deluge record. And James Taylor obviously has always been associated with environmental causes Neil Young, you know, these, so, so all to hear guys that were around for all this stuff say like, yeah, this is as bad as I've ever seen it, you know, yeah. which it obviously is, but somehow it's still just sobering to hear that. And, uh, you know, the antithesis of that is, is sort of like raising people's vibrations. It's music, it's sharing, it's songs, it's stories. Facts don't change people's minds anymore because everybody has their own set of facts and the internet and phones and stuff where it's curated to, to put your own point of view back in your face in the convenience of the palm of your hand, right? But if you get in the room with other people, you can sort of get challenged and you can raise your own vibration and you can learn from others and work in concert with each other. And that's what it, with each other, that's what a great band does, right? A, a great band locks in. So it becomes this one thing that sort of breathes and undulates and moves. The Grateful Dead would do that at their best on a good night. It would be like this one organism, you know, that would like improv into all these other things you know, making the, the sum greater than its parts. And that's what we need now as a country, right? In World War II, we were able to become this great nation that helped save the world. We certainly didn't do it alone, as we're often kind of told. But, you know, we, we did rise to the occasion like no other nation had. And that's because everybody pitched in, right? From 20-year-old women that, that moved to the coast to work in shipyards and learn how to weld, you know, to people rationing aluminum and tin and whatever you could back at home. When we work together, we can do something better than we can do on our own, right? People who surf these big waves, you see these guys that surf a hundred foot wave in Nazare and Portugal and stuff. They need a team, right? You need dudes with jet skis to drop you in and pull you out when it breaks and all this other stuff. And, and we're on a big wave now, right? We're on a big wave that, that's been sort of breaking and coming in toward the coastline for two and a half years. Mm. Right. And a lot of people are like, I don't need to get vaxxed. I don't need to stop it. You're not going to beat nature. Right. So we have to learn how to work in harmony with her and work as a team to, to ride on the wave instead of letting it hit us in the face. So that's my thought for the holiday. You guys can check out this new episode and, and the next episodes at noelcastler.com. I'll be back with you next week. Jimmy's got his stuff. Jimmy, tell him about your stuff. Yeah, uh, you can check out my material at jbkonair.com. Uh, also subscribe to my Substack. Um, it's all there at uh, my Twitter and Instagram at jbkonair. It'll be right there for you. All right. Well, and, and thanks, Jimmy. It's another, you know, well, we haven't been doing this a year, but it's the end of the year. So thanks for all your help this year and cutting all those kick-ass clips. And course, uh, man. appreciate yeah. you, buddy. And uh, we'll see you soon, folks. This is episode... 43 of the Noel Castler podcast, Lee Sklar special edition. Peace.